Welcome to Say That, podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jeff Brewer. Boo! Boo! <laughs> or possibly the ghostly apparition of the former Jed Brewer. Let's find out together. <laughs> Joining us all the way from Rock Ridge, Tennessee, a hopefully still corporeal Lee Unger. Oh, yes. I cannot yet pass through walls or haunt this podcast. And not for yet. lack of trying. <laughs> the only thing that haunts this podcast is the Pro Tools software and occasional lack of preparation yeah. on my part. Well, I mean, Pro Tools software, it, uh, it likes to announce its presence with authority. Yeah. And occasional villain to uh, all living things, the Xfinity Internet Corporation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also an occasional specter that uh, is haunting the, the, the goings on of this podcast. But despite all those apparitions and obstacles, ghostly and technological, we, we soldier on. Bravely. That's right. We don't, we don't cross the streams, but we do soldier We were on. told that crossing the streams was bad. Now, dear listener, Lee has done something there, which you will, through the rest of the show, be like, why is Matt kind of feel like only 80% of his brain in this? That's because the other 20% is desperately trying, like, you don't need to sneak a Ghostbusters reference in there. You don't need to sneak a Ghostbusters <laughs> reference there. Not every sentence needs a Ghostbusters reference. And uh, Matt, you don't, you don't need a Ghostbusters reference, but we'd all enjoy a Ghostbusters reference. Well, I, maybe I, we'll I personally, I personally would love to hear, like, Matt going full out, like his full, like Bill Murray impression, just the whole, the whole nine. I, Ghostbusters is absolutely one of my favorite movies. And it's one of those things. I don't know if you, either you guys read this where you've seen a piece of media so many times or just consumed it so many times that the parts of it that make you, particularly in comedies, like just make you laugh the most are like the smallest, dumbest, not even sure yes. that was meant to be a joke. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Like Ghostbusters, you know, written by incredibly funny people, extremely funny. I think the hardest I've laughed pound for pound at it in the last 10 years is there's a scene where Bill Murray is going to meet Sigourney Weaver and she's like an opera. She's a, she's in an orchestra because that was like in the eighties. You may have noticed uh, dear listeners, if you weren't around at the time, people who wrote movies and TV didn't know what jobs were. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone was like an architect or. <laughs> Maybe they worked in advertising because TV writers, that was like close to what they did. Otherwise, they yeah. were just flinging things out. Yeah. They were like, they're scientists and she plays viola. Sure, it'll be fine. <laughs> but he's like, Bill Murray goes to see her about something and try to hit on her because, you know, again, things you could do in the 80s. Just like, hey, she won't be into it for the first two acts, but then it'll be a love story. That'll be, we can do that. It's great. <laughs> um, and there's like some, you know, nerd, other orchestra person there. And as they're walking away, Bill Murray just yells across this park. Nice to see you, sir. Glad. I, sorry, I didn't get to hear your name. Glad you're feeling better. Still very pale, though. <laughs> <laughs> and every time I'm in a social situation where I've not been introduced to someone, my part of my brain is just going, sorry, I didn't get to Sorry, I didn't get your name. Still very pale, though. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> These are the kind of thoughts I'm keeping at bay at any given moment. While I try to navigate the wider world, imagine how much wisdom would be just, you know, given to the the masses if I had not mentioned Ghostbusters and Matt's the full one hundred percent of Matt's mental abilities were devoted to actually this podcast. Yeah, it's a scary yeah. world to live in, definitely. Um, so that's we, we do have some of your amazing questions to points 
Uh, what wisdom we have left at it? I'm going to leave the wisdom mostly to uh, Lee and Jed because, again, mainly going to be thinking about Ghostbusters quotes. And <laughs> the ones that make sense are very small. If we reference a Twinkie, will I point out that's a big Twinkie? Yes, I will. <laughs> Four people will laugh. A lot of people are going to be very confused, and that's, that's, our, that's the ratio. Totally worth it. Absolutely. So, but before we get into uh, the, your questions, uh, which you hang out all the way in the end, I guess ways you can touch this, but we must start with a non-Halloween-based emergency. Oh. Wow. And an emergency that makes me think of several Ghostbusters references, but the ones that I cannot say on this program. <laughs> Everything was going fine until somebody here shut off the power. Mm. And the somebody in question uh, is uh, old, nah, friends of strong term, uh, old subject of conversation on the show, and somebody who had a had a whole podcast dedicated to their work. Which, Ooh. if you follow podcasting, you know that's not great. Uh, former <laughs> Mars Hill pastor Mark Driscoll. Ah, as you may remember, uh, Mr. Driscoll resigned uh, from the Mars Hill Church Network. And then like two weeks later, that stopped being a church network because the megachurch model is uh, super uh, deep and strong, built on strong foundation. Um, so that <laughs> you may remember unique in kind of pastors stepping down because of scandal. Uh, as as reported, uh, Driscoll, he, he, there was no like sexual scandal. There was no... Uh, financial malfeasance. He was just such a jerk to everyone all the time that his own elder board was like, you probably shouldn't be in charge of a church if you're going to be this much of a jerk. That's tough. (laughs) And on one hand, better than, you know, other times of scandal. On the other hand, as Lee points out, that's got to sting. Like if you, if you think about getting fired from your job, it would be bad if they were like, you didn't hit your sales numbers. Or, you know, whatever, and your performance has been poor and we have to we have to let you go. Think about how much worse it would be if they were like, no, you're just you are a bummer to have around the office. <laughs> we're, you're the only you're the only person bringing any to clients. But even still, you got to go. Mm-hmm. Wow. This whole thing literally can't exist without you because of the way it's structured. And yet it can't exist with you because you're that awful. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. In the middle of the World Series season, the Phillies have gone to Bryce Harper and said, "We'd prefer if you just left. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have anyone to replace you. We're going to play with eight guys in the field. Yeah, but it's still it's going to be fine." So, uh, and I read from uh, JulieRoyes dot com. Julie Royce has a lot of great uh, religion reporting and a lot of great reporting around kind of. Um, scandal and, and some church stuff. And I believe she's based in Chicago. And uh, here, here's two uh, awesome sentences back to back. Mark Driscoll, who resigned from Mars Hill church in 2014 amid allegations of bullying and arrogance is now claiming church leaders were plotting to accuse him of adultery. If he didn't resign. Wow. Interesting. Driscoll who currently pastors the Trinity church in Scottsdale, Arizona made the explosive claim in a sermon last Sunday on Nehemiah. Driscoll alleged that prior to resigning from Marseille, God told him the tra- tr- that a trap was set. Then, during an 18-month hiatus following his resignation, Driscoll said he met multiple times at, P- at Panera, which is where all good church drama and scandal happens. Much like, you know, 
every television show has their place where all the subterfuge is done. In Game of Thrones, they're walking through a beautifully appointed garden, talking about betraying someone. Sure, you know, yeah. Maybe you've got a detective show where they're at the, you know, leaning against the squad car, talking about all the goings on. The golf course, the. Absolutely, where the big deals are getting yeah. done. If it's going to be a white American church power play, you know it's happening in a Panera. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the it's the you pick two with the bacon turkey Bravo. <laughs> I, I like to think that in the middle of, if you don't resign, we'll ruin you. We'll tell everyone that the little like buzzer thing to let you know your coffee is going on went off. Yeah. And they were like, hold on, I have to go. <laughs> this, is, this is just going to drive us crazy if we just let it keep going. That's fantastic. Yeah, so um, I love that in the middle of a sermon, he was like, oh, and by the way, they tried to ruin me. That's strange. Yeah. Like, regardless of if it happened or not, and it probably didn't, and his former uh, board of elders, and I believe they had a board of operations or something, oversight, B-O-O, which is great when I, because I looked some of this up on Twitter to see what was going on, and he had put up something, and then people were reporting on it. But every time they would mention like so-and-so, the Board of Oversight, it would um, just, they'd abbreviate it. So it would just say in all caps, BOO member. And then the quote, which was very Halloween-y, very, very of the season. Um, But one of the downsides of getting, which all these churches do, of filling your kind of board with just like the richest business guys you can find, is they know how to play this kind of stuff. Mm. And they've all like, no. We've got minutes from meetings, and we've got this and that, and we documented the documented everything up the wazoo. Um, no, Mark, 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 Mark. You got to know when you're outgunned, my man. Yeah. Driscoll said he met multiple times at Panera, at Panera with some critics and enemies who used to be friends. Ah. Some who were pastors, some who are still pastors. This is the most boring Game of Thrones I've ever heard of in my life. <laughs> But just imagine your pastor. I mean, these people don't have to imagine it because they they got what they wanted. They're going to Mark Driscoll's church. But any other pastor, just I'd like to talk to you about Nehemiah. Anyway, I was in the Panera meeting with my enemies. <laughs> that's um. What's that's the uh, what's the white megachurch version of the Iron Throne, Matt? Oh, that's a good question. It's the Iron Pulpit. And it has been made out of the now forsaken headset microphones of your enemy pastors. <laughs> yes. Every, mi- every mid-sized church <laughs> that had to shut down because you ate, you just kind of poached all their people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. The handheld mic is just fused up there with the power of your pyro from yeah. stage. Yeah, that's right. That's the dragon wow. equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so this is this is going to be connected. So stay with me for a second. When I was eight years old, I played one season of Little League T-ball. And man, we were bad. We lost every game. Like we were super, super not good. And I don't bring it up very often because it was not a highlight in my life. And I'm not generally looking to like draw a lot of attention to that particular chapter because, you know, I got other things that, that did go pretty well, so I'd rather talk about those. And I find it fascinating that there's this pattern amongst certain kinds of people 
who want to keep going back to their wild defeats and rehash those publicly. And man, that's um, that's a really interesting PR strategy. Not a good yeah. one, but a really interesting one. Yeah, one person, as we're talking about, the, the realm of sport, uh, who did that definitely is Michael Jordan. If you watch the, uh, you know, the, the Last Dance documentary, Michael Jordan's kind of unequivocally certain the city of Chicago. I'm not allowed to say otherwise. Probably the greatest basketball player to ever live. And to a person, everyone watched that show, and their takeaway was, that guy's insane. Yeah. <laughs> even though he's the best one, even though it drove him to whatever heights, that's not a way to live. <laughs> no. So if you're doing the same thing, but telling stories about your enemies forsaking you at the Panera. Yeah. Yeah. And also you don't have the six championships. Yeah. You just, you just got told to go away. You've got a bunch of book sales that we now know are because your own church bought the books. Oof. That's not, those aren't championship rings, man. Or as my 14 year old son would say, L bro. That's an L. That that is an L. Unequivocally an L. Well, I did want to bring up one other thing. Uh similarly, and this is a little more of a local flair because I, I did not know this, and Jed may not have been aware either. But a uh, scant week or so ago, as you hear this podcast, at a at a church in Oak Park, Illinois, very close to where Jed and I are, um, there was a conference about the future of evangelicalism. There was rethinking evangelicalism. And I don't, I was not invited to these kind of things as you can imagine. Um, but I would like to put forth that whatever they came up with, I hope it was just a list of things and going, not that. (laughs) (laughs) Just a big picture of Mark Driscoll interrupting a sermon to make up a story about the people who tried to bring him down and going, whatever evangelicalism is, if it needs to continue existing, which by the way, it doesn't. Um, we could just, let's just remove this from it. I'd like to now see, and, and this, we're going to go back to where we started, Matt. I like the idea of you just going for a pleasant walk throughout your neighborhood and happening upon this conference, walking in, I don't know, looking for a muffin or a donut or something like that. And I'm bear like in that way. If I smell baked goods, I'm just going to wander out. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then somebody uh, grabs you by the shoulder and says, you might have an idea. Tell us what you think the f- the future of evangelicalism is, and you just saying, "Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, <laughs> mass hysteria." Well done, well done. <laughs> yeah, I don't think my strategy of the future of evangelicalism of burn everything down, donate right. all the money you got, and possibly salt the earth so nothing will ever grow again would have gone over. Like, I'm not sure that's what they were looking for with reconstructing evangelicalism. Yeah. Which was their theme. Mm. The one Ghostbusters quote I want to go to the most is the one I can't say. And uh, that's what I heard. <laughs> That'll be for the Patreon version of Say That. Yes. That's uh, Say That Podcast at Patreon.com, which is not yeah. a real website. <laughs> it is absolutely not. Um, yes, Your Honor, it's true. This man has no evangelicalism. Um, so before I say the forbidden line from the uh, 1988 uh, 1984, as a matter of fact, go, hit Ghostbusters. We're going to go ahead and declare emergency off, mm. uh, which I imagine is not how the Reconstructing Evangelicalism Conference ended. No, it's very much emergencies ongoing. Very much emergency still going left, right, and center. 
For now, we're going to move on to your fine questions. If you hang out with us all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways you can touch this, or you can scroll down to your episode description, click the links you find there. First question comes in anonymously and says, I feel like it's really shallow, but I'm finding I'm not physically attracted to my spouse anymore. It concerns me, and I then feel bad if I find myself thinking someone else is attractive, but not my spouse. What can I do? Maybe it doesn't matter. It's not that I feel concerned that I'll have an affair. It just doesn't seem like something you should feel about your partner. And we, we always appreciate our questions of a, a vulnerable and honest nature, which this very, very much is. It is also um, something that maybe, uh, you know, Lee and Jed more than myself over the years, but myself even as well, as, even as someone who hasn't been that long. Turns out a lot of people, when they feel something bad about their marriage, uh, the people on this podcast are the ones they come to and say, yeah. I don't have anybody else to tell this, so. Here goes. Mm. Here. What do you do with that? And this, this thing might be, over the years, a bit more common than uh, people would put forth on their uh, yearly uh, Instagram anniversary posts and sure. that you might pick up from uh, popular media. So uh, I don't think it is necessarily a meltdown issue, but I do think it is something that is worth talking about if you do feel it, worth dealing with. Um, and one of the things we notice even in the question uh, I f- starts out. I feel like it's really shallow. It's not that I'm going to have an affair. It. I feel like this is something I shouldn't feel. There's a lot of self judgment that goes on around these kind of things, which is totally fair, totally real. But that's probably one of the first things we're going to start chipping away at. But other, so when we look at this kind of question, Lee, and the feelings that are going on around it, where do we start with kind of that big glob of stuff? I I actually, you know, it's one of these things that I actually think this is a really important. I like the way you set this up, Matt. That that. Somehow we become a place where people feel comfortable to bring these types of questions. That's actually a really good thing because these are, these are things that people think at a much more common clip than people have any idea. And you especially wouldn't know it, as you say, uh, just kind of perusing the social media landscape of our world. Um, one of the things that um, my wife, Christy, has always been on a campaign about with our own daughters, with our own, with our, with our children, with other, you know, young people that kind of come in and out of our lives in, in and out of our homes and stuff like that. When they talk to her about relationships and things is, Hey, just so you know, the picture that like movies and TV shows and books paint of the way relationships work is not an accurate thing. And all of the amazing, powerful feelings that you feel when you first start falling for somebody those things go away. Those things change. You have to figure out what a relationship actually looks like in the middle of a real life. And she is, she is always kind of on a campaign about those things to a degree that to which our, our daughters are probably like, I know mom, I get it. You have said this before. There's a lot of, there's a lot of work that comes in actually having a lifelong relationship with somebody that's doesn't seem pretty. Doesn't seem something like something you would post doesn't seem like something that would be attractive in a movie. We've said this before on the show, but like, you know, the classic kind of the, the, the classic template for a love story, um, especially in kind of the English language version of books, TV shows, movies is kind of the, the Jane Austen, uh, story template. And all of her stories ended when the couple got married. That was the, that was the height. That was the goal. That was the finish line of, all of the relationship problems, the credits roll, the music swells and everything's good 
as we are as the couple reaches the their wedding day. And then it's over. We don't need to have any more information. Everything's fine now. The reality of of life is a much different thing. So when you're writing to us about your spouse and it's like, man, I'm I'm experiencing this drop off in certain kind of natural feelings that I was experiencing before. I don't really know what to do with that. I'm feeling some other feelings, you know, about other people and I'm not I'm not in danger of having an affair or anything like that, but what do I do? And so one of the things that we want to just acknowledge from the top is relationships are not like they are in the movies. They're not like they are in the TV shows and they're certainly not like they are in in uh you know, in social media posts. And in things like um th- things like attraction and the feelings associated with attraction, what I would suggest to you is there is a whole lot more choice, intentionality involved in those kinds of feelings than we are led to believe in our culture. The, 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 the thing that you're led to believe is if you look a certain way, if you dress a certain way, if you weigh a certain amount or whatever the thing is, or you, you have this amount of muscle definition or you hit the gym this much or whatever, then you are automatically attractive to everyone at all times in every situation. That is not a, a realistic version of anything. Um, everyone in the world has different tastes. Everybody likes different things. Everybody is attracted to different things. Obviously we get sold kind of a one size fits all version of what is attractive. But what we need to realize in the, in the kind of general up and down kind of long haul of a real relationship is you're going to find things that, that are going to be difficult for you to deal with. You're going to find things that are annoying. You're going to find things that you're going to have conflicts. You're going to work through all these things. And again, some of the natural things that you felt when you first got together with your, with your spouse, or your partner, some of these, those things are going to cool. Now within the midst of that, what do we do when we if you feel yourself kind of cooling on your attraction for your spouse, well, one question that I would have is let's set some of these kind of natural attraction stuff aside for a second and just kind of do a survey of like when things are at their best, when you guys are really connecting and clicking, what are some things that you love about your spouse that you really appreciate and you just really dig? Like you guys connect on this you just find this delightful about that person. Maybe it's their laugh. Maybe it's their music taste. Maybe it's the, the way that you guys connect uh, when you're, you know, making dinner together or when you're working around the house together or, you know, playing games, like whatever the thing is, the, the way that you talk about your new favorite show or your new favorite book or whatever, when you're sharing your life together, what are some things about your spouse that you really, really love? A lot of people that, that do a lot of marriage research, and I'm not talking about Christian marriage books or anything like that. I'm not talking about anything to do with Christianity or the church or evangelicalism or anything like that. I'm talking about people who are like clinical psychologists who have tons and tons of decades of experience working with lots of different couples throughout lots of different kinds of life that live in lots of different places. What they will tell you is that when you intentionally focus on appreciate and express your appreciation for the things that you enjoy about your spouse. You actually reinforce your own affection for them. You actually reinforce your own attraction to them. You you can actually do things with intentionality, choice, and attitude that will, it sounds weird, 
but will increase your attraction to your spouse through your own kind of, it's doubling down on and intentionally expressing, this is what I appreciate about you. This is what I like about you. Um, Some researchers will tell you, and some clinical psychologists will tell you, specifically when you have what they call positive comparisons. What I mean by that, and what what, uh, clinicians mean by that is, when you specifically um, think and then out loud express, this is what I like about you as opposed to other people. (laughs) It sounds like a funny thing to say, but when you express a positive comparison, your mate as opposed to other people, I like this about you. Other people have this thing going on in their marriage. I'm glad that we don't. I like what we have. That is a thing that reinforces and, in, and actually increases your appreciation and, 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 and it spills over into attraction and gratitude and all those things about your partner. You're not weird for experiencing what you're experiencing. Matt's exactly right. We need to get rid of the shame piece and I'm awful and all that kinds of stuff. What, a lot of what you're experiencing is kind of the natural letdown of you're living in the real world in real relationships with conflicts and all that kind of stuff. It's not the movies. It's not TV. But within that context, there are a lot of things that we can actually do when it comes to understanding and specifically and intentionally expressing the things that you appreciate about your partner that will actually have an impact on your attraction for them. It's a fantastic place to start that off. And Jed, I'd love you to pick us up there. I I wonder if part of exactly as Lee's describing there, kind of comparing this to a, an imagined way that things should go is one of the things I think that very often happens in a situation like this is we are seeing um, physical attraction or attraction, as this person put it, as something that should be independent of other things in our relationship and just in our life yeah. and or a catalyst as opposed to far more often, I think, in particularly in committed relation, healthy committed relationships. Uh, that's a thing that might be downstream yeah. of a whole bunch of other stuff that if we'd never been in the situation before, we don't know is related. So where would we go looking for those connections? Great questions, man. And certainly I want to reinforce everything that the, uh, both Lee and Matt have already said. It's awesome stuff. So there's a few things that are worth looking at. Um, one question is, are you bored? Are you bored with your life? Are you bored with your marriage? Boredom does funny things to the brain. Um, and you're allowed to feel bored. Like, um, it, that's going to happen periodically. But like, if you're, if you're bored, let's acknowledge that because that's not necessarily about anything sexual that you can just be bored and then it will impact your sex life. And there's, there's really unhealthy ways to deal with boredom, but there's great ways to deal with boredom. Like, if you discover that you're bored and then you kind of build some adventures for yourself in your life, that's a great thing. That's beautiful, man. So let's start by asking, are you bored? It could be with your spouse, but are you bored with your life? Are you bored with your work? Are you bored with the same old, same old, and you, every day is the same you get up? Another question to ask is, are you mad about something? Uh, are you mad about something in your life? Are you mad about something with your spouse? You know, is there is there an anger thing going on here? Is there... To, to take it a step further, do you feel hurt about something? And is there mm-hmm. a resentment thing going on here? Because to, to back up exactly what, what Lee was saying, you know, in terms of like media representations of relationships are not accurate. And this goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Like, I mean, they're not accurate today, but they, they weren't accurate in the Jane Austen era either. 
like we have this idea that like you can be really pissed at each other, but then you're super hot for each other. And so it's, it's kind of neat. Like, I don't think that's actually super realistic, man. Um, you know, I think it's in general, if you're really mad at a person and feel really hurt by them, I think it's fairly hard to be like, yeah, I'm super into that. Uh, you know, so I think that there are some, some questions worth looking at boredom, hurt, anger, resentment. I think these are worth looking at. It's also worth looking at, and this is going to involve talking to a physician, is, is there anything medically going on with you? There's all kinds of stuff in the human body that can lower your sex drive. Um, it can happen for all kinds of reasons, particularly if this is kind of a sudden thing. Give your GP a call, man. You know, check in with your, with your, um, just your regular doctor and, and kind of talk it through with them. Because, again, there's stuff that may have nothing to do with your relationship, but where you, you do have a lower sex drive. And it's, it's worth taking a look at that. But that actually leads to the next thing, which is it kind of feels a little bit like there are some details missing. Um, and that makes sense. This is a hypersensitive question that you probably don't want to like, you know, here's, here's everything going on in my marriage, but dude, therapy is great. It's really awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I, if, if you wonder, maybe therapy would be helpful to me, give it a try. And in your case, like you can reach out to a marriage counselor and say, I'm not looking to come in with my spouse. I just want to talk to you about some dynamics and kind of get some input. Like you can absolutely do that. It would be great. Um, if you're not sure how to hook that up, reach out to us. We can help you figure that out, both in terms of finding someone and you know figuring out the finances. But like, you do need to talk to a person about this. Um, part of this at some point will involve talking to your spouse, but talking to a person with some actual expertise that knows the details of your situation is definitely going to be a part of figuring this out and solving it and, and figure out what you do with it. But I definitely want to land by, again, reinforcing everything that Matt and Lee have already said and noting ebbs and flows are a part of every relationship. Yeah, there is there's no way around that. And I think I don't think it would be a good goal to have a relationship with no ebbs and flows. Like, it's definitely not a realistic goal because it's not on offer. You're not going to have that. But I'm not sure that it would be a, a good goal either, even if it were you know technically possible. Um I want to – both Lee and Matt have already said this, but I, I, I want to say the same thing in slightly different language. I, I do really want to encourage you to think about it. Most people are an acquired taste, and my question is are you acquiring it, right? Like mm. people learn to appreciate art. They learn to appreciate wine. They learn to appreciate film. They learn to appreciate poetry. Once you're out of the infatuation stage, which is chemically just being high, I mean like – infatuation is an incredibly powerful chemical process in your body. Once you're out of the infatuation stage, you kind of have to choose to invest in this relationship. If you want it to be something, you kind of have to learn to acquire a taste for your partner. And, and that is, um, it's a process and something you have to work at. And the last thing I would say, which is again, just really a restatement is lust is kind of a chaotic thing. And, and I, I mean, lust separate from, the pejorative sense where it's described in, in the Bible. I, I just mean lust is just kind of raw sexual desire. You know, raw sexual desire is kind of a chaotic thing. It, it kind of, it, it comes and goes, but intimacy will only happen if you cultivate it. I yeah. don't think there is any such thing as randomly occurring relational intimacy. If you want relational intimacy, it will happen if, and when you build it. And I bet that you can build a great sex life that you both feel great about 
but you can build it on the bedrock of relational intimacy. If you'll build that relational intimacy, I bet you can figure out the rest of it. And that is definitely something that you can choose to build. We've got your back. We love you. We believe in you. Keep your head up. Absolutely right. Uh, one thing I would tack on to the end of what the, the, all the great stuff these guys said is ideally, and this would maybe come after you talk to your doctor, after you talk to a therapist, trusted friend, this is probably a thing you do want to talk to your partner about at some point. Um, that's healthy. That's good. One would do well in most general occasions to use I statements, as you may have heard over many years from, from when we talk about therapy, because on some level, and I don't mean this to point a finger and I, I don't mean this to blame, but this is a you problem, <laughs> which I mean is this is not a problem your partner has most likely. Now, if your partner uh, has given up showering <laughs> or something like that, or gone on a garlic heavy diet and not brush their teeth in a couple of months. Okay. We've got, we've got some issues on that end, but it is, it is not a good or winning strategy to blame someone else's body or behavior for uh, issues you are having with your own desire. That is probably not the inroad to a productive discussion. Um, I assume that you as a listener to this podcast are a, a wise and empathetic person, but that is always worth pointing out, particularly if you are a male-bodied person having this conversation with a female-bodied person. Um, I know all three of us on this show have had mostly young, well-meaning men who thought they would comment about either a new wife or, God forbid, in the dumber cases, a wife who recently had a child or something make a comment about their physical appearance don't. that was anything other than exemplary and complimentary and that's not a way to go through life don't do that that's right a little psa from your friends who have had to talk their friends out of getting murdered occasionally <laughs> as we say it will not go well for you in the land it will not go well in the land we're gonna move on to our next question here it comes in and says i used to be a really passionate about faith and expressive in worship over the last few years, it's like the fire has diminished. I struggle to pray and worship, but deep down the faith is still there. What should I do? I don't want to be fake in worship, etc., but also don't know if doing these things, it will help regrow my faith. Thank you. And another great question, and oddly enough, I think in, in a very similar vein of a maybe an emotional or a more surface level change that uh, we're, we're trying to identify. Does this, what does this mean? And does it mean mm. anything? And the answer may be, it doesn't mean as much as you think, or it means not exactly uh, the problem that you think. And Lee, as far as things that are extremely common and extremely cyclical, like we talked about in, in the last show, uh, this is another one that doesn't show up on Instagram, but who boy do a lot of people deal with this at, different yeah. points and where do we start with this? Yeah. I, I mean, the number one thing that needs to be said about this is that it is so often the case that the version of the expression of faith that you hear in the church circle in kind of evangelical culture and white American Christian culture is just, there is a reductive um, thing where there's one mode of expression. If you 
have a living faith, it means that you love being in that building, singing with other Jesus people, songs about Jesus. And there's nothing you love more than just getting real hype and singing some worship music at the top of your lungs. I was talking with somebody recently about, um, and, and Jed could speak to this more than I can about how this happened or why this is the case or all this kind of stuff. But it feels like for the last at least 10 years, the, the, whatever the, whatever you would call the industry that produces worship music for in the kind of Christian music, whatever, um, all of it is now, there's not a lot of like, you know, a songwriter, you know, making a thoughtful song about Jesus or the life of faith or what it looks like to walk with him. There's a couple of people out there doing that kind of thing. Almost all of the music is let's buy the most expensive equipment we can set it all up in a room where there's a really gifted band actually. And then, um, 80 people standing around the the outside and then we're going to live record worship music where all the songs play for 12 minutes and everybody's screaming and clapping and, and it's just a really, really big, high emotional kind of thing. Um, the, the message from the, from the church, and, and I don't know why that happened. And that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, Jed could speak to how that happened. I guess it's, I guess it's what makes, makes money. I, yep. That's why everything happens. But, um, <laughs> but there is this message and it's just super reductive that if you have a living faith in Jesus, then the thing you will love more than anything else is singing this little chorus for 12 and a half minutes with tears rolling down your face. So here's what I want to say to you. That is reductive. It's not of it's it's not very exemplary or 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 helpful about what it means to have a living faith. You are as Matt suggested in the pitch to me very well represented in people who know Jesus who have come to this conclusion about themselves like I just don't want to be there. I just don't want to do that. I'm not really feeling that anymore. What do I do with the fact that I do have a faith that lives somewhere down inside me, but I don't I don't get all emotional about, you know, whatever it is, reading my Bible or um that's what people in the south say. It, it's always possessive, my Bible, reading my Bible and <laughs> and singing this song for 15 and a half minutes or whatever it is. Um so you're not alone on that. That doesn't make you weird. There's nothing wrong with that. We have been sold on a really reductive version of something that's not very helpful. Um, if, if, if you have a further question of what do I do about that? I, my faith does mean something to me. I don't really know where to go next. Here's what I would say to you. Find someone in need and help them. Find someone who's hurting and comfort them. Find someone who's going through a rough time and ask them if they want to talk and just listen to them. Find someone who's being marginalized by an, by an unkind society and advocate for them. Here's the thing. The, the New Testament, if you were just to, if you were to just take in the New Testament at a, at, a, at a, like a high rate, just like listen to it being read like an audiobook, one thing that you would find is there definitely are places in there where people who had this faith met together to sing together. Um, there are definitely places where people are encouraged using words from scripture. There are definitely, there's definitely some preaching. There's definitely um, prayer groups and stuff like that. Here's the thing though. If you were to take in the new Testament at a high clip, what you would find is that is a very small percentage of what the new Testament describes as expressing a faith in Jesus. 
what you would find is a much higher percentage of what the New Testament talks about in expressing a faith in Jesus has to do with serving people who are in need, comforting people who are hurting, carrying each other's burdens, advocating for the marginalized, loving a hurting world. That's what the New Testament describes most with most frequency and 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 with with most detail about what it actually looks like to live a life of faith and express a life of faith in Jesus. Here's the thing about that. You could, like, if I'm having a really terrible day and your goal is to serve me by listening to me on that, you don't even have to be hyper excited. You don't even actually have to have a great attitude. Um, you, can, you can pull that off even if you didn't really want to. Um, and guess what? It counts. And you're a person of faith. And you did the Jesus thing at maximum strength. There's even a story that Jesus told, told about a guy who had a really bad attitude about doing what God wanted him to do, and, um, and yet he did it anyway, and he got praised for it. You, the, the idea of emotionality being the, the number one thing about the expression of a faith in Jesus, it's just, <laughs> this, is, this, is a, this is a term that Christian people love to throw around. It's not very biblical. Uh, it's certainly not the most biblical thing. And when we want to look at what is the most biblical thing, when we want to look at what is an expression of faith, it's going to have to do with loving a broken world, comforting those who are hurting, caring about people who need their need, who, who have some needs that need to need to be met and advocating for the marginalized. That's what expressing faith looks like. You don't have to be hyped to do that. You don't have to be emotional to do that. You don't have to have tears rolling down your face in a 27-minute in worship song to do that. You can just go do that today, and it will be maximum strength Christianity. Absolutely right. That's a fantastic place to start that off. And Jed, where would we go from there? Love everything Lee said, man. I think it's really worth you kind of looking at yourself and, and asking, why are outward expressions of your faith so important to you? Where is the... Where's the motivation coming from for that? Like, if you're a person you're like, I just really love being hype. Like, you know, when I played sports in high school, I was super hyped and I loved it. You know, and when when I go to the, the sales meeting at work, I'm super hyped and I just really love that. So when I go to church, I want to be super hyped and I really love that. Like, if that's just you, that, that's cool, man. But like, that's an aesthetic preference. That's just kind of the way you, you like things, which is fine as long as you'll own that it's an aesthetic preference. But if you're not the dude who just loves to be hyped all the time, um, then why for this, why do you feel like you, you have to be that way? Why do you, why do you feel like you have to be hyped? Right. And, and who are the people that are pressuring you on that? I think it's really worth considering. And, and Lee kind of hinted at this, that Jesus, I, I was trying to think of the right phrase to describe this. Jesus taught what I'm going to term worship modesty. Like um, if you think of the, the, a couple things that we associate with church and kind of worship, right? You have prayer and you have giving and, Jesus' teaching is that those should be both be done in secret, that no one should ever see you do either one of those. And the following is conjecture on my part. You don't have to go with me, but I think one could readily make an argument that Jesus would be pretty uncomfortable with like super demonstrative outward shows of worship in a public context, right? Like, you know, uh, you know, the the raising your hands and the 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 crying and whatnot, like. Jesus didn't mention that, but he did specifically mention both prayer and giving as something to be done in secret. And so um, it 
it's certainly worth looking at why we seem to want to push so hard in a direction that is like directly counter to the things that Jesus taught. Um, I, I think that's worth looking at. I don't have an immediate answer for you because it's kind of a question you need to answer for yourself, right? For some of us, that's just what we were raised with. Like that's the only model of what being a Christian looks like we've ever seen. Um, for some of us, um, maybe that's our social circle. Like everybody we know, that's just kind of how they do. And there's kind of a, a peer pressure element. I think for some of us, there's an aspirational quality to that where it's like, I really wish I were a person where my faith was important to me. And that's what I have in my head is what it would look like if my faith were really important mm. to me. And I, 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 I want that on that basis, but I, I want to encourage you to think that through and, and, and have a sense of your motivations. I'm not condemning them. I'm not, I'm not saying that your motivations are wrong, but I, I do think you should think through your motivations because right now this what you what you definitely have is an expectation disconnect, right? You expect yourself to be one way and then you are another. You do have that for sure and that disconnect is implying to you that there is a fundamental problem with you as a person of faith. That's kind of a big deal, man. Like um it is the ultimate form of self-perjury to not really be about the things that you claim to believe. So that's, that is a heavy accusation that you're laying on yourself. And currently you're doing it just because there's an expectation mismatch. And so I think you kind of owe it to yourself to really dig in and see where these expectations coming from, what would actually be realistic. Is there anything to any of this? Is there any biblical background to any of this? I have a theory. Well, I have two theories. They're both short. I'll give you the first one. The first one is that just like we were talking about in the last question, and Matt is right, and there's a lot of similarity here. Dude, how passionate you feel about anything, it ebbs and flows, man. It, it's, it's just 100% true, and there's no right or wrong about it. Look, I love to cook. I really do. But how in touch I am with that varies day to day and week to week and month to month. Like sometimes I'm, I'm super hyped about cooking and man, I'm ready to get in the kitchen. I'm ready to throw down. And sometimes it feels like a distant thing that I can kind of, eh, you know, assent to in a, in a rote intellectual sense. Like yeah, I, I do enjoy cooking from time to time. I'm the same guy though. Like when I'm super right. in touch with it and when I'm super not, I'm, I'm still the same guy. So everything goes in ebbs and flows that that's just life. The other thing that's really possible is for you to just be bored, right? Almost nothing is inherently fascinating forever. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of corners of modern Christianity do a huge disservice of is it's kind of like, we're here to be endlessly fascinated nerds about this one thing. We're, we're here to think that there's, that you could always dig deeper into the, the exposition of this three word line in the Bible. And that the more you find that fascinating, the better a Christian you are. That's a pretty hard argument to make, man. You're, you're allowed to be bored with things. Like you're allowed to say, well, we sang 10 choruses. That's about as many choruses as I personally want to sing. So I, I, I feel like my chorus repetition needs have been met. I don't judge those who want to do the 11th, but for me, I'm out at this time. That's totally cool, man. You're allowed to be bored. Then the last thing is just, are you looking for, for more meaning? Like there's not a lot of inherent meaning in smoke machines. They're cool. And like, they can be a part of something, but like they don't, they don't inherently have a great deal of meaning. Lee is right. That serving other people does 
serving other people does tend to have inherent meaning. There's every chance that your brain is like, hey, man, if we could have a little bit more of the meaning, that would be more satisfying. Give yourself permission to listen to your brain, man. Um, like, you don't need to demonize yourself all the time. You don't need to tell yourself mm. you're a bad Christian. It's, it's just not it, man. If your brain's not happy, let's try something else. You may try something else with more meaning that you feel better about anyway. I think it's absolutely right. And I want to reinforce uh, what Jeb was saying there, that there's some people who are just really into doing things this way. Yeah, That's cool. It's great. Um, there's some people they want, they, for however it works for them, they want to, they want to sing all 20 choruses or they want to close their eyes or they want to move around and be very expressive. During worship. That's cool. There's, um, you know, they're, they're, we're all from the, the South of the United States. There's some people maybe take that a little far and end up running around the room and uh, clunking their head. And that's <laughs> uh, maybe a little more than we need to do, but you know, however you get down, but as Jed is saying, and I think the word authentic, authentic is a very important one here. Like if that's just what you feel inside yourself and you feel great about doing that. Cool. If you feel that that's what you should be doing or that's what everyone else is doing and you feel like a failure, you're not doing it. That's a problem. That's going to be a problem. And, you know, you mentioned in your, in your question over the last few years, it's like the fires diminished. You mean when that global pandemic hit and <laughs> right. like people couldn't meet in person and like a lot of people lost their jobs and everything was scary for a while. A uh, perfectly good reason to have, for things to have changed. Doesn't mean your, your faith inherently changed, but maybe as these guys are pointing out another, it could, could have had a similarity to another area in which we have all seen this in other people, which is, some people when they're, you know, they first, either they first get saved or they're just young and they're like, you know, in their teens or whatever. And they're, maybe they're in a, a very high energy youthy environment or a certain, and that's like, that's, that's the jam that everybody's doing. They're trying it on. That's cool. Um, just because that falls away doesn't mean the faith part fell away. Right. And actually a lot of people can kind of get to a bad place by assuming that because that kind of season of youthful exuberance uh, fell by the wayside, that that means the whole thing has to get tossed out. And that's definitely not true. As, as Jez mentioned, there's ebbs and flows there and there's seasons and stuff. Like there's seasons where you, you are a little worn out. If you get to church in the morning, then that's about as Lee was saying, if that's about as good as you're going to do, you still did a hundred percent of what you could do. And the other part about that is, it doesn't do well to compare yourself to other people. We've talked a lot on the show over the years about how comparison is the thief of joy. And that's absolutely true. It also, in a lot of instances, doesn't do you well to compare you to past you mm. in the sense of, Oh, well, you know, five years ago when I didn't have any responsibilities and had not lived through a global pandemic and was getting more sleep and lived, lived closer to the church or whatever, any, any million numbers of environmental factors. I was like, 10 times more hyped for this worship set than I am now. Well, put how past you felt about it out uh, aside for a second. Are you getting anything out of the worship set now? Cause if you get like a little bit of, yeah, I like that song, that, that chord, I, I, I like the words that, and I've, you know, it's cool for everyone to raise their voices and that, that's neat. That's nice. That's it's not a failure. Cause you feel that and you feel like you used to feel 10 times that, if this is adding to your week or adding to your 
your enjoyment of something, then it's still an addition. That's something worth doing. As you just pointed out, if you're getting nothing out of it, then we need to look at other stuff. But the idea of diminishing returns is not always the healthiest way to see experiences. If you're, if it's helping, if something's helping you, if you're getting something out of it, if it's helping you have a good experience, connect with a community, you know, uh, I've heard both of these guys lead worship a lot over the years. And there's always particularly new people in the places they've led worship. And it is one of those things of, Hey, I know you think you're too cool for this or you're too whatever, just like maybe try it on, maybe just sing with this group of people and see if that doesn't do something. And the thing about that is, as we're talking about just from a psychological standpoint, it often does. That's why concerts are fun. That's how a lot of that stuff works. And if you're getting that bit of like, yeah, that was, that was cool. I, you know, that was something it's worth exploring. If that is an, 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 holding a part in your life that is still something worth doing on top of mm. all the other st- great stuff these guys gave you move on to our final question for the episode here. It came in and said, I was reading the parable, of the bags of gold in Matthew 25, making good ROI. Isn't really how I think of Jesus wanting me to live out my faith usually. So what does this parable mean? And a- another cool question and Lee, where do we kick off here? Well, um, when it comes to ROI, I'm, I'm probably the, I'm, I'm I'm like the least business savvy person ever. I've never like um really gotten a I've never made a ton of huge investments or gotten any return on those investments. <laughs> like one of these I'm not one of these people that is like active with uh you know like uh you know really good at eBay or anything like that. Like I bought this low and I flipped it and sold it high. I, I don't know anything about any of those things. So I'm I'm not the guy to ask about that kind of stuff, but I, I, I see what you mean. I, I can see the kind of, kind of dissonance um, that you might be experiencing kind of just reading through this parable. And like, I didn't think the Jesus thing was about this. Um, for me, I'll, I'll just talk about where I come from on my experience with um, in my own life in my own walk and my own kind of expression of my life of faith and and what Jesus is talking about here. Um, I think about those, I mean, a a parable is, um, you know, definitionally a parable is a story. It's a kind of a metaphorical platform by which Jesus, you know, that Jesus would use to kind of let us behind the scenes on the way something works in the universe. Um, You might think the world works in this way, let me let me give you a peek behind the curtain and show you how things are really going to go and how how some of these things really work. Um, this is what everybody thinks, but but let me show you where um, you know where a lot of folks have gotten this wrong and 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 kind of a a cheat code to to finding you know some more meaning or some more depth or some more purpose or whatever. That's kind of generally what the parables are about, and and uh, and this one is no exception. And so when we look at the bags of gold. Um, I think the bags of gold metaphorically are a stand-in for just kind of resources in general. And that's kind of the way I think about this. Um, and maybe the what Jesus is saying in, in a way is every single person who has ever lived has some resources. Now, some people appear to have a, a lot more than other folks. Some people have tons of money and some people have tons of houses and cars and, you know, businesses and and employees and all kinds of stuff, just tons and tons of resources. And some people seem to barely have anything, but everybody has something. Everybody has some time, some energy. Everybody has some gifts and talents, um, a different kind of personality than other folks. Um, When I look at my own life, 
I might seem to have less resources than other people, but God has given me some resources. He's given me time. He's given me a voice. He's given me a home and some energy. He's given me some gifts and some, and some, you know, uh, a platform, uh, you know, some relationships. And the question, one of the important questions for my own kind of valuation of my own life as a person of faith is, what am I doing with what God has given me? Yep. Um, when I look at an incredibly confusing and hurting world where um, some people have a lot and some people have nothing, I mean, barely anything, and some people seem to have it easy and some people have it really hard and are really hurting, um, what am I doing in my corner of the world with the you know, with whatever I have been given, um, in, in my town and in my community, and then in the broader sense of the global community that I'm a part of because of, because of technology, because of the internet, because of, you know, different social media websites and stuff like that. What impact am I having with the resources I've been given with the time, with the gifts, with the voice, with the platform, with the home, with, um, with the energy and money, by the way, and food and other things that I've been given. Um, when I, when, you know, I, I, I do a lot of volunteer work with, with young people in my town. And, you know, a, a small example of, of what I'm talking about, and, and this may seem trite, but I assure you it's not, is, you know, if I'm, I walk onto the campus of the local high school in in my community and um and I feel like, you know, I've got about this much time to be on this campus today. I'm going to try to make these relationships and have these conversations. And uh you know, a, a kid comes up to me that I know a little bit and and he says, "Hey man, listen. Um my ride fell through today. Um do you have time to to give me a ride to my house?" And I know this kid, and I know that he's in a tough situation, and I know that his, I know that his mom works nights, and I know that his dad just left the house, and I know that if uh, if I don't give him a ride home, he's going to be walking like a good three and a half miles to his house. And yeah, it's not a terribly far distance, but it's it's not going to be an easy walk. And depending on the weather and stuff like that, and this may sound really stupid, but for me to say yes, I have a car and I have time, you come with me. Let, let, let me give you a ride to your house. That's a really small example of, of what I think this parable is exactly about, which is you've been given gifts. You've been given resources. You have, you have talents. You have a voice. You have energy. You have maybe a little bit of money. You, you might have a gift of, of baking really great brownies, or maybe you're just a really good listener. Um, again, you have resources. The world is a dark and hurting place. What are we doing with the resources that we've been given to make this world a little less hurting, a little less hard, and a little less difficult for those who are having a hard time? And I think that is the point of the of the story that Jesus told, and it's definitely the 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 way that I'm taking it, and it's definitely the way that I'm thinking about the bags of gold. I don't know about return on investment. I'm not very good at that stuff, but I know that I've been given some stuff, and I know that that in certain circumstances— I can use what I've been given to help somebody else out. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think it's a great point and a great place to start that off. And Jed, where would we close it out? I'm going to tell you a quick story. And it's basically a story of me bragging on my little brother because he's one of the coolest people I know. So 
Um, he's a couple years younger than me. And when um, I was at the beginning of college, he would have been very, very early in high school. And we're coming up on Christmas. And I, because I was studying some tech stuff at the time, I became aware that Legos makes this thing uh, called the Mindstorm Robotics Kit. And it's kind of like half toy, half edutainment. But it's basically this little thing where, like, you can build stuff with Legos, but it can be really simple robots. And you can make them, you know, move and, and do things. And I knew my little brother, and I I thought, you know, I think he'd really dig that. And so I went to my parents, and, like, I grew up in a family with not very much money, and this was the kind of thing where, like, it wouldn't be a lot for other people. It was a lot for us. And so I kind of had to sell them on, like, hey, I know this is more than you normally spend, but, like, for real, I think my brother would really like it. And I think, you know, I'll pitch in, and we're, we should make this happen. And to their credit, they're like, oh, okay, let's let's do it. So we give Ruben this gift, this this little kind of starter robotics kit, right? Now, a few things don't happen, and it's really important to look at things that don't happen. He did not open it and say, oh, this is a nicer gift than normal. I don't trust this. I'm going to close this box and put this in safekeeping and do nothing with it just in case, like, there's, like, a trick or you guys are doing so. I don't want to be <laughs> called out here. What's your angle, Exactly. Mom? Exactly. So, like, actually, uh-huh. if you could dig it, if you read the story in Matthew 25, like, the last guy, he's literally like, what's your angle, God? That That is literally what the last guy is saying. So that that didn't happen. All right. The other thing that didn't happen is my little brother didn't open it and say, my parents, my brother, this is a wondrous gift that you have given me, and I must honor you by doing only the utmost with it. For it is right for the praise of your glory. Like, that would be weird. Like, no one would respond to a gift that way. So here's what he actually did. He was like, oh, that's cool. Robots, man. That's pretty awesome. I like robots. So he started playing with it. Someone gave him a gift, and then he started playing with it. And then he played with it some more, and he played with it some more, and he played with it some more. And then he went to college to study robots. And he studied robots the entire time he was in college. And then when he finished college, he's like, I dig that. I want to do more of that. So he went and got a master's degree to study robots. And he was like, man, I really dig that. This robots thing is pretty neat. I want to do that some more. So then he went and got a doctoral degree to study robots. And he kept robotting it up. And today, and this is the this is the mega brag part, dude has invented and designed medical robotics that improve wow. people's physical health. He's he's made the world a demonstrably better place through the power of robots. But <laughs> that's right, the power of robots. I said it. I'm not afraid of the robot uprising. I've already asked him to put me on the do not kill list, so I'm doing great. <laughs> the rest of you are going to have to sort yourselves out, but I'm doing awesome. Okay, but let's go back. Jed's going to be killed by a Lego robot in a great moment of irony. <laughs> and it's going and I just imagined a Lego robot that looked like Steve Buscemi from the from Billy Madison. That's right. Just That's right. Just strikes Jed off the off the kill list. You got it. But let's go let's go back to the beginning cuz we wound up in this really cool place. We wound up in this place where this dude has developed this world-class expertise, very literally made the world a better place, saving lives. It's crazy. It's so cool. But where did it start? It started with, here's a gift. Here's an invitation to something cool in your life. There's no angle. There's no expectation that you must do this for the praise of the excellence of my glory, because that's also super weird. There's just, here's a gift. And a gift is an invitation to something cool. And he chose to receive that invitation. He chose to open it and take that step. 
and have that adventure and do something fun that turned into something cool, that turned into something about which he was passionate. God is not threatening you. Dude, if God wanted to threaten you, he would threaten you. God is not standing around waiting to say, I told you that boy ain't right. God is offering you an invitation. Every single day that you get up, every day you wake up on the green side of the grass, God is offering you an invitation to something cool. I don't know exactly what that something cool is in your life, but I do know that you are being invited. And it's not because of the praise of the excellence of his glory, and it's not because you're a bad person if you don't. It's just because it's cool, man. God has something fun and cool and exciting that he would like for you to be involved. He's got other stuff for other people, but he's got a thing specifically for you. And if you'll do it, you will have fun. You will discover strengths you didn't know you had. You will do things you didn't think you could pull off. You will have adventures. You will make the world a better place. Maybe it's through medical robotics. Maybe it's through just helping someone who feels lonely. Maybe it's something else entirely. But you will have fun. You will have adventures. You will make the world a better place. I guarantee you that is what God wants for you. That's what God is offering you. That's what that parable is about. Don't let anybody put fear on you. Man, it's ruining the vibe. I love the idea of it's Christmas morning. Here's a robot kit. Be afraid. Like, that's... (laughs) That's weird. No one would do that. Lose the be afraid. God wants to give you a gift. He's offering a gift. Open up that gift and have some fun. I'm now imagining a truly horrible sermon and or tweet where someone's like, my, at my, at my house on Christmas, we approach our gifts with fear and trembling <laughs> the way the Lord would want. And Matt, also, I, I was also thinking about what I, you'll know the quote better. But what, what's the uh, the 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 why worry quote about the nuclear power plant strapped to our back? Uh, <laughs> oh from, yeah, from Ghostbusters. You know, an un- untested particle accelerator strapped to my back. That's exactly. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Just the be afraid. My goodness, that was fantastic. Thanks, man. Absolutely right. Fantastic stuff from both of those guys. If you have a question for us, write us, say, say that podcast at gmail.com or the bridge, Chicago.tumble.com slash ask. You want to keep that entirely anonymous. That's how both. The, that's how uh, two of our three questions came in this week. And that is not a surprise given the content. We always appreciate the honesty and the transparency. And if you haven't noticed, uh, even if your question doesn't come in anonymously, we always read it anonymously on the air because eh, we people have had buyer's remorse over the years <laughs> on this show. And, so, you know, and I wrote that in with my name on it. And uh, just to be clear, I would prefer to not put that on the air. So if you write in, it will be anonymous. But if you put it in through the Tumblr, uh, it will be anonymous, even to our own selves. Double anonymous. Uh, double anonymity. We're going to take out the song this week. Uh, we talked a lot on the show about kind of some uncertainties and some certainties. This is a great song about God, certainty about you. This is a Jed's song called You've Made Up Your Mind. Take out that. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. And this is something worth singing about. I want you to sing this like you mean it. We're going to go all the way back to the start and sing about the fact that God has made up his mind on us. Sing this with me. When I mess things up, it's easy to think you love me less, but your love for me is a choice you've made where you see me and you say yes you've made up your mind that i am accepted made up your mind that i'm with
Take me in. 